Hi there. You're listening to Lindisfarne Anglican Church's Sermon Podcast, a place where you can hear God's Word preached if you weren't able to join us at one of our services during the week. My prayer for you today is that as you listen to this message, you'd be challenged, encouraged, and equipped to live as a disciple of Christ in the world. May God richly bless you as you listen to this message today. September and September is a special time of the year if you're a sports fan isn't it because it's finals time. Uh, Next weekend we now know will come the grand final for the AFL uh, tragics amongst us and either Greater Western Sydney or Richmond are going to take home the flag and um, you know who really cares about those two teams but uh, (laughs) uh, 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 But for those two teams and their associated supporters, uh, it will be a great time of triumph. One of those teams, at what about 5pm next Saturday afternoon, will raise the Premiership Cup knowing that they are the only team for this year that has truly been successful in their goal. They are the only team to win the Premiership, which, despite all the protests that they're simply rebuilding the list, is actually what each team wants to do each year. Lift that cup, win that Premiership. And of course, uh, as the gloss starts to wear off, people will look at that winning team and they will say, how did they do that? And of course, they'll look at all the hard work that was done, the energy and effort that was put in by lots of different people. But of course, it'll come down to one key thing, good leadership. Who was sitting in that coach's chair? When teams play badly, it's the coach who gets the boot. They don't sack their entire playing list, they sack the coach. The leader. And when the, co- well, when the team does well, uh, the team gets the glory, but as does the coach, a premiership coach. That's the kind of thing that if you're a football coach, you want to be. And if you're a struggling club, the kind of person you want to get after you've sacked your coach is maybe someone who's proven that they can be the leader who wins premierships. Every team needs the kind of coach who can lead them to victory. But more than that, if he's any good, he'll have a wonderful team of assistant coaches and they'll often go on to be good coaches and premiership coaches in other clubs. Not only that, but there'll be a leadership group amongst the players who he's trained to uh, bring about his vision on the field as he sits in the box uh, and is kind of one step removed from what goes on on actual game day. The leaders of the football club, the coach, the captain, the assistant coaches, all of these people are so important to achieving that goal for which they strive, the winning of the Premiership Cup. Leaders who raise up leaders, who work together to get the job done are so important, not just to football teams, but to any team who's trying to get anything done. And as we've been talking about Uh, what our purpose is as the church. Today we come to know that as Jesus Christ is head of the church and as he sent us to do this one thing, to make disciples, he's told us how we're to do that by word, prayer and service and we believe 
that this is best supported by fruitful and godly leaders. We need leaders if we're going to make disciples. And we need good leaders, godly leaders, fruitful leaders, if we're going to be a disciple-making church. As we looked at the tools of disciple-making last week, word, prayer and service, we were in chapter 6 of Acts, and we saw how as the church grew and as things got more complicated and there was now this tension between the ethnic groups, the Jews and the Greeks, and they were a bit worried about whether the widows from both those groups were being treated equitably, what did they do? They raised up leaders, fruitful, godly leaders who were full of the Spirit, who could go about the task of continuing to make sure that the church made disciples by word and prayer, which is what the apostles were going to keep on focusing on, and by service, which is what these new leaders were going to do. And of course, when we get to Acts chapter 7, uh, we see that actually Stephen, who's one of these people they raise up, not only is he on about service, he's on about proclaiming the word too, and he gets stoned for it. The church needs leaders who are going to keep us focused on the mission that our king, our, our coach, our, our key leader, Jesus, has called us to. The Apostle Paul, uh, as he goes about the mission of taking the gospel to all nations, as uh, he uh, goes on his missionary journeys that we read about in Acts and that we have the letters he writes to those churches Uh, making up a large part of our New Testament, we see in that he is a man who is keen on growing leaders for the task of disciple-making. From the moment of his conversion, uh, and as he goes about on those journeys, Paul visits, preaches, sets up churches, and does so with the help of others as he trains others for leadership and he establishes leaders in those churches. As Paul goes on those missionary journeys, we read about how he never did it alone. Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas, Paul and Timothy. These are people whom, well, perhaps in the first instance, Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas might actually be helping Saul grow a little bit, but Paul and Silas, Paul and Timothy, Silas and Timothy, people that Paul is clearly uh, training up to be leaders in the church. We read a lot about Silas and Timothy in Acts, uh, but we don't read about uh, Titus, who we had another reading from today that Paul wrote a letter to. But he appears heaps in the book of 2 Corinthians. Nine times, in fact, he's mentioned by name as Paul talks about how Titus is doing a leadership task on his behalf in that church. Paul and Timothy, Paul and Titus. These were two men, Timothy and Titus, whom Paul was developing and growing to be leaders of a disciple-making church. And we're lucky, aren't we? Because we have two letters that Paul wrote to those two men uh, in which he was giving them instructions about how they were to lead. And what he says in those letters is that they need to Appoint leaders who will make disciples. Fruitful, godly leadership is vital to the disciple-making mission of the church. And as we look at uh, Titus uh, 1 
And as we look at Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 3, we'll see in those uh, readings that uh, Paul is deeply concerned with the type of people who get called into leadership. Now, as we uh, look at those two passages, and I've got them printed on the back of the sermon outline for you, as we look at them, uh, there's all sorts of things that we could say that I'm not going to talk about, like what is a deacon, what is an elder, how does that relate to a bishop or a priest or a lay reader or a parish council. There's all sorts of conversations that we could have. Why is it all in the masculine? We're not going to, I'm not going to touch on any of those things today, though I know they are things that we might want to talk about at some point. But instead, what I want to do today is argue that what we see here is the high bar placed in front of anyone, male or female, who wants to serve in leadership in the church. These passages are an invitation to us to consider the kind of standards you should hold me to. It's always a bit of a gulp in the throat when you pick these passages to be read in church when you're the leader. But also, not just me, but the kind of leaders that you're nominating and uh, maybe even voting on for parish council next week. I hope that as we consider these, your mind will be turned to the kind of leaders we should have and maybe whether or not God's calling you to be one of them. So, let, let's just take a little bit of a look. There is so much that I could say, uh, and I don't want to keep you here all day, so I've tried to cut it down a little bit. But let me notice the first thing that really stuck out to me. Paul says it last, but I want to put it first, because I actually think uh, it is the, the thing that actually informs everything else. In uh, Titus 1 verse 9, he says... The leader must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And 1 Timothy 3.9, they must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. Our leaders need to be orthodox. That is, they need to believe the right stuff because the job of a leader is to guard the truth of the gospel and help the truth of the gospel grow in each of our hearts. And so if our leaders are a bit wonky, we're going to be really wonky. Not only that, but as Christians we believe that right belief actually helps us have right behaviour. And that's, that is, we believe that Uh, When we truly understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us, and when the Spirit comes upon us and enables us to see the grace of God, that actually transforms us and the way that we live in the world. Right belief is so vitally important. But of course, anyone can pass a simple quiz. The actual real way to test orthodox belief is with the kind of behaviours that Paul lists that the kind of person a leader should be. Jesus talks about this, doesn't he? In Luke chapter 6, he says, uh, verse 45, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. (coughs) For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Our leaders need to be people whose hearts are full of gospel truth. 
Because hearts that are full of gospel truth lead to all these other things that Paul talks about that a leader needs to be, that make them fruitful and godly. And what are some of those things? Well, uh, the first thing uh, we see, or another thing we see there, is that they need to be above reproach or well-respected. 1 Timothy 3, 2, the overseer is to be above reproach. Or uh, Titus 1, 6, an elder must be blameless. Now, what does this mean? Does it mean that Uh, If you can point out one time where I've done the wrong thing, uh, that I now need to resign. I don't think so. Well, at least I hope not. Because I can let you in a little secret this morning. I'm not perfect. You laugh like you already knew that. (laughs) No, Paul is not calling for perfection in leaders. What he's calling for is a good public reputation. That is, when you ask around, not necessarily in the world, though that would be helpful, but particularly when you ask around the the church and the wider church, those who lead us, most people ought to say, you know what, he's a good guy, She's she's a good lass. Not perfect, but of good public reputation. And how does one do that? Well, they do that by living in a right kind of way that Paul also outlines. The first, or one of the most important things we see both in Timothy and Titus is how they live their married life. In 1 Timothy 3, above reproach, How? Faithful to his wife. An elder must be blameless. What's the first thing he says? Faithful to his wife. Leaders are required to be godly in their sexuality. And as Christians, we know that the standard for godly sexuality is faithfulness in marriage, man and woman, or if you're not married, then abstinence outside of marriage. That kind of person is the kind of person that Paul says qualifies to be a leader. And if you're not living like that, then you ought to rule yourself out. You're not fit to be a leader. A great shame in the Anglican Church, in many places in both Australia and throughout the world, is we are in a rush to redefine biblical sexuality so that we can allow people to just do whatever they feel like in this area. So we can better line up with the world's view of sexuality. But of course, long before same-sex marriage became a thing, just hooking up with uh, your missus was a thing. And we weren't cool with that either. The Christian sexual ethic of faithfulness in marriage and abstinence outside and of marriage being between a man and a woman is the standard to which we all ought to strive, but which certainly we must hold our leaders to. It is of no great surprise to me that where the church fails in this area, it also sees decline. 
because it is a great example of how they've failed to hold to that sound doctrine we were talking about. So we want sound orthodox leaders who are above reproach, who are faithful in their marriage or in their sexuality. What else? They need to be self-controlled. Timothy says temperate, self-controlled, respectable. Uh, We see here, uh, and, and Titus likewise, not given to drunkenness, not violent, in control of his money, that there's a whole bunch of different ways that the self-control of a leader can be tested in the way that he uses alcohol, in the way that uh, uh, she, she or he speaks, in the way uh, that they use money. And again, what we're striving for is not perfection, but a publicly demonstrable outworking of the fruit of the spirit of self-control. Yeah, I can see that this person uh, is working on that and is doing that thing. Self-control is so important for a leader because self-control is also what helps leaders get stuff done. And often leaders do that in a way where there is little oversight of their day-to-day activities. Our leaders need to be self-controlled. Our leaders too, we read, rather interestingly, uh, need to be able to manage others. They need to be able to manage their families. Uh, we see in Titus 1.6, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. How good it is that I am a minister when my daughter is three. What, what are we to make of this? Uh, does it mean that if our leaders have children who fail to believe in the gospel, that, that, that they're ruled out. Is that what this means? Paul, I think here, is not saying that the, uh, that, that the behaviour of the child is a reflection on the, the leader, even though that's what it sounds like he's saying. What I think he's saying is that uh, the leader who does nothing about the behaviour of their children is not fit to lead the church because if he does nothing in this sphere, what possibly could he do in this sphere? Uh, I think the story of Eli the priest is illustrative for us here. In 1 Samuel, Eli uh, is, is the priest and he has these sons who we read become immoral and greedy. And we read in 1 Samuel 3.13, I told him that I would judge his family, this is Eli, forever, because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God and he, that is Eli, failed to restrain them. It's, I think, not so much the fact that Eli's sons ran off the rails that's the problem. It's Eli's decision to not do anything about it. So when Amity grows up and starts stealing and I find out about it, you better hope that I address that with her and that I do something about it and that Elisa and I try and sort that out and pray like mad that she stops stealing and that she listens to our correction 
and she uh, does what we say. But of course, I can't actually control that. I can control what I do when I hear the bad behaviour and I can control some of the things that I might put in place to stop that, but I ultimately can't control her. She is her own human. We can't hold leaders accountable for the actions of their children unless they have failed to address those actions once identified. It's not the absence of bad children that Paul's looking for in a leader. It's the absence of parental involvement and discipline that Paul is concerned with here. Because at the end of the day, if we want leaders who are going to help us to grow as Christians, they're going to have to discipline us. Our leaders are going to have to say to us, hey, you know what? That's not right. You, you can't actually do that. You can't live like that. The, Paul, the, the Bible actually calls us to something better. And if they can't do that with their kid, how on earth will they do that with us? Leaders are called to lovingly correct us, just as parents lovingly correct their child. So we want these godly, orthodox leaders who are well-respected, who are faithful in their marriage, who act uh, in all these areas with self-control, who can manage their own family. What else does Paul require? I think there's just two more things that are worth noting. One, they need to be able to teach. 1 Timothy 3, 2. Respectable, hospitable, able to teach. So it's not enough that they simply are orthodox in belief and good blokes. They need to also be able to help us understand our faith and grow in our knowledge and understanding of Jesus. It doesn't mean they all have to be up the front preaching sermons, but it does mean that they are disciple-making disciples. Leaders are people who help disciples make disciples. So they are disciple-making disciples who make disciple-making disciples. That makes sense. We have one job as the church, to be disciple-makers. And if we can't pass the faith on to others, if our leaders can't do that, then what hope do we have? Finally, we heard it in that uh, verse 2 of 1 Timothy 3, hospitality, it's in Titus as well. Hospitality is part of the leader's life. We are called to be people who are hospitable. I try as much as possible for our rectory to be a hospitable place. Not just to people from church, but to people who are outside of church as well. Our leaders need to have a generosity of heart. Because we're called as Christians, who are people of word, prayer and service, to a generosity of heart. And you can listen to last week's sermon if you want to hear more about how our need to serve is connected to generosity. And I think that's what hospitality is hitting at here. So, these are high standards, aren't they? Why? Why are the standards so high, so politically incorrect? Well, it's because the job of the leader is to reproduce. And the reproducible leader is going to reproduce out of their genetics and you can't reproduce what you're not that's why the bar is high for leaders one of the horrifying things about being uh, the senior leader in a church 
is that oftentimes the church starts looking a lot like its leader. I've seen this in churches I've worked at and and it terrifies me. It's okay though, isn't it, that the church would do this because hopefully, as much as possible, I'm living up to these sort of standards that Paul calls us to. But also, I'm not perfect and that's exactly why we need more than just me. We need other leaders who reproduce of themselves so that we can be a well-rounded church that doesn't just look like a bunch of crisp managers. And if we're going to do that, we need fruitful, godly leaders, lots of them. If we truly believe that Jesus Christ is head of the church, that he sent us to make disciples by word, prayer and service, and that that task that job is supported by fruitful, godly leaders, then we need to get on with the job of making disciples and raising up leaders to help us with that task. So what are some things we can do to raise up fruitful, godly leaders? Well, firstly, I think we need to do some work at working out how we identify leaders, how we empower them, and how we release them and send them out. And so let me ask today, maybe you're sitting here going, wow, this is something that I'm interested in. I, I think maybe God is calling me to be a leader in his church. Uh, Paul says, 1 Timothy 3, 1, you desire a noble task. First question to ask yourself if that's you, are you living up to these higher standards? And if you are, then we can start to have the kind of conversation about discerning your giftedness for leadership. Because it's not just about living up to those high standards. It's also about being gifted for the task by God. Like Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4, the way the Spirit gifts people for leadership to help the church grow as disciples. The only way to discern that often is to start having a go. So if you're interested, come and speak to me. We'll think about how it is that we can help you start to test your call to leadership. And once we've identified leaders and thought about how we do that in a a good way, we must be willing to send them out amongst ourselves, but also to say goodbye as we send them out to other places. I remember when I moved to Melbourne, uh, I started meeting all these ministers. I was in my early 20s. There were all these ministers in churches who were in their sort of 40s. And I noticed... Uh, that they all, they all knew each other. And it wasn't just that they knew each other because they kept going to a clergy conference together. They actually knew each other from some other time. And as I kind of joined the dots, I realised they'd actually all gone to this one church as sort of like teenagers and then into their early 20s when they were at uni together. And clearly that church had done an exceptional job of developing and raising up leaders and then sending them out because here they were. You know, clearly not every minister I met from this church, but time and time again, oh, you went to that church when you were, when you were at uni. Oh, you went to that church when you were at uni. And then as I thought about it, I realised that that's kind of how I got into leadership as well. That in fact, as I reflect on the church that I grew up in, 
Not only have, have I ended up in leadership in the church, there's at least two other rectors in Tasmania alone, a school chaplain, three people on the mission field, and someone working in head office at the diocese who all within a probably five-year period were part of a church that focused on raising up leaders and sending them out. If we do a good job at identifying and training leaders, we're going to have to send them to other places because we won't. That their giftedness will exceed what we can use them for. And wouldn't it be wonderful to be a church like that in 20 years' time, to have some 20-year-olds kicking around going, hey, all these ministers used to seem to go to Lindisfarne Anglican Church. What's that about? That must have been a church that believed in raising up godly leaders so that the church, not just in Lindisfarne, but around Tasmania and further afield, would be a disciple-making organisation. So let's together pray and think about how we can provide opportunities for people to test their call, to serve in leadership, and to use the gifts God has given them to make disciples of Jesus Christ. I know that in my own life and walk into leadership, it has been people taking risks that have seen me where I am today. People who asked me to step into leadership and helped me as I fumbled around people who gave me responsibility and backed me up. The opportunities that different leaders gave me in my late teens and early 20s were the reason I was able to discern my call and the reason why I'm standing here today. And we need to do likewise, to value and train leadership but not just those we're going to send out. Of course, the great danger when we start talking about leaders is we we make disciple-making all about training up leaders in churches. But actually, we need to also make sure we value and train godly lay leaders who are going to serve the church in a different kind of capacity to rectors or missionaries or those sorts of things. We actually need to be a disciple-making church committed not just to sending leaders out for the church, but also empowering them to work within the church and to lead in whatever secular environment God has called them to so that they can be leaders in those places too as they help us to make disciples of Jesus. I think we've got more to do in this area. But if we believe that leaders are key for the disciple-making tasks, then we're going to make this a priority And my invitation for each of you today is to join me in praying and seeking God's wisdom for how we can keep doing that better as we go forward together. Amen. Hey there. Thanks so much for listening to this message today. I hope you were encouraged by God as he spoke to you by his Holy Spirit. Please head to our website if you'd like more information about our church www.lindisfarneanglican.org.au or like us on Facebook by searching Lindisfarne Anglican. 
We are a church for Lindisfarne, making disciples of Jesus. God bless.